Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact. So jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Overnight America with Ryan Recker, sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts, michaelsflooringoutlet.com. On the voice of St. Louis, KMOX. Joining us now is a public policy analyst, economics expert, and also professor of finance at Stockton University in New Jersey, Dr. Michael Bustler. Thanks for coming back on to Overnight America. Well, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. We're hearing a lot of uh, stories of different people coming out and saying that we need more, 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 more. We need universal basic income. We need to do another stimulus package. We need to throw more money at states. And we look at this and sometimes it gets approved. We just had you know trillions of dollars spent right at the onset of President Biden's administration and having the State of the Union or the address tonight talking about more money needed as well. Now you have uh, Ocasio-Cortez coming out as a congresswoman advocating for the Green New Deal and, and trillions and trillions and trillions of more dollars being requested from the government. And they're trying to make this case that all of this infrastructure is necessary and it's the right thing to do and it's the fiscal thing to do. It's smart for us to do all of this right now. So when you start to hear um, the the buzzings of the Green New Deal coming back, transforming the economy, things like that, what do you think of when you hear these plans? Well, first of all, uh, we need to take a look at our fiscal policy. Um, regardless of what they say, you can't continue to spend money you don't have forever. How bad is this, is this problem? Well, since 1963, we've had deficits in um, 56 of the 60 years, 55 out of the 59 years, rather, um, since 1963, only four years, uh, 98, 99, um, 97, 98, 99, and 2000 was the budget in balance. The rest of the time, we had deficits. Now, how do we finance the deficits? Um, the federal government sells bonds to the public with no intention of ever paying those bonds back. In other words, they sell a bond, 10 or 20 year bond to the public. They pay interest every year. The bond matures in 10 or 20 years. They're still running deficits, so they can't pay it back. So what do they do? They sell new bonds to pay back the old bonds and roll over the debt. The result of that is that the federal government, the total public debt incurred by the federal government is now approaching $30 trillion. Mm -hmm. I say, well, 
What does that mean? Is that a big number? <laughs> most economists will say it certainly is a big number, but <clears throat> most economists will say if the public debt is less than one year's GDP, you're probably okay. <clears throat> if it gets more than one year GDP, it's going to cause a problem. GDP will be around 21 trillion this year. Mm -hmm. The debt is 30 trillion, so we're almost 50 percent above one year's GDP. So what are the problems? <clears throat> well, number one, even though interest rates for years now have been rock bottom, the interest expense on that debt this year will be about $400 billion. That's about 10% of the government's non-COVID uh, budget. And that's $400 billion that can't be used for more productive spending. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> the second problem, and probably more serious, is um, it has an extreme inflationary impact. So why is that? So when the government sells those bonds, they're pulling money out of the capital markets and the government is spending like crazy. So they're stimulating demand in the economy. The hope is that business increases output to meet the demand and the economy grows. However, in order to increase output, there are two basic things business needs, labor and capital. Well, the unemployment rate is still relatively high, so we should be able to get labor. But if the federal government is pulling all the money or significant amounts of money out of capital markets, there won't be enough for business when they go to expand. Mm -hmm. So if they can't get capital, raise capital to expand, the only thing left to do to um, respond to excess demand is to raise prices. So that ends up being inflationary and it'll tend to stagnate the economy and slow growth. And the deficit problem is getting worse, not better. Last year, the deficit hit a record of $3 trillion in one year we overspent. This year, and I'm not sure what else President Biden will do between now and the end of the fiscal year, but already we're looking at over a $3 trillion deficit this year. So the problem keeps getting worse. It will eventually, if we keep doing this, that is spending money we don't have, uh, eventually that's going to catch up to us. Interest rates are going to go up. Inflation, and that's really my biggest fear right now, mm -hmm. inflation, that's going to be a problem. And we could see uh, stagnant growth into the future. Now, not this year. This year we're going to see tremendous growth. The first quarter GDP numbers due out in the next day or two it's probably going to show growth in the 6 to 8% range. Mm. And for the rest of the year, assuming the economy reopens, we're going to have growth probably in the 8 to 10% range. And that's good for us, and it'll get us back above where we were before the virus hit. The problem is I think the economy has been overstimulated by all of this uh, excess government spending. And my biggest fear, as I said, is inflation. Um, and there are really a couple of other factors that are leading to that, not just the federal government def uh, deficit spending, but there's a couple other factors. One, the Biden administration has declared war on fossil fuels. Mm. And as a result of that, you can't drill on uh, national lands anymore. They canceled the Keystone Pipeline. They're looking at the Dakota Pipeline to cancel that. The result of that will be a restriction in the supply of fossil fuels at a time when the demand in the economy, worldwide economy is growing, that's gonna drive energy prices up. I mean, if you bought gasoline lately, you probably paid about 70, 80 cents a gallon more than you paid at the end of last year. Mm -hmm. That's gonna get worse. 
high energy prices ripple through the economy and really put an inflationary problem uh, onto all of us because not only will we pay more for gasoline and heating oil, but the trucking industry is going to pay more for fuel, and that's going to drive up the cost of of goods. So mm-hmm. um, high energy prices, another fear I have for inflation. Yeah. Secondly, um, the Federal Reserve has been increasing the money supply rapidly. The money supply has increased by more than 25% in the last two years. Most economists will tell you that when you end up having uh, that much money in circulation, history indicates it will lead to inflation. So you have the high energy prices, the excess growth in the money supply, the huge federal government budget deficits, and a potential capital shortage. All of those mean mean we're going to have extremely high inflation probably uh, sometime this year. Now, let me say one more thing. Already, inflation has gone up. In the month of January, the CPI, Consumer Price Index, went up three-tenths of a percent in one month. On an annualized basis, that's about three and a half percent inflation. February, it went up four-tenths of one percent. Annualized, that's about four and a half percent inflation. March, it went up six-tenths of one percent. Annualized, that's over a seven percent inflation rate. So already inflation is a problem and the president's going to get on national TV today and in front of parts of Congress and say he wants to spend even more money that we don't have. Mm. Dr. Michael Bussler is a public policy analyst and economics expert and also professor of finance at Stockton University in New Jersey with the economy, spending, where is it going? All of those things will continue with him after the break on Overnight America, KMOX. All the news and all that matters to you. The voice of St. Louis, KMOX. Welcome back to Overnight America with the State of the Union, or I should say presidential address from President Biden tonight, looking at all of the additional money and the proposals of how we spend this additional money. What does that really mean for the economy? It's a good reminder. And someone that I think does a fantastic job breaking it down is Dr. Michael Bussler. He's a public policy analyst and economics expert and also professor of finance at Stockton University in New Jersey. I'm hoping maybe we can do a quick history lesson. When you talk about the deficit and the rule of thumb, trying not to get that number higher than what you're bringing in over the course of a year, was it World War II the last time we saw it get this high and out of whack? And if if that's the case, the last time we saw it here as a country, how did we get ourselves out of it? So you're, you're right. The last time it was this bad was in 1946. The public debt was 150%, that is 50% more, than annual GDP. How did we get out of it? The war got over and we drastically cut government spending because (laughs) we weren't in a war anymore. And once that happened in the 50s, we had Dwight Eisenhower president was a very conservative president. He tried to balance the budget every year. So Mm -hmm. we got out of it last time because the war ended. We didn't have to spend any more money. This time, that's not the case. When you start giving people free stuff, which is what Uh, President Biden likes to do, after a while, they start to feel entitled to it. So Mm -hmm. trying to reverse giving people free stuff is extremely difficult. And that's why 
trying to bring the deficit down now will be a very, very difficult problem. Yeah, that was around the same time as Roswell. So you're saying the aliens didn't crash and give us money to make up for our deficit. <laughs> I don't I don't think so, but you never know what stories are going to come out. Yeah, we need to learn a little bit from history. And when we talk about the way it is now, and it's funny you mentioned that number because it seems like we're almost proportionately in debt the way we were back then. Big different approaches when you have President Biden going out and saying this is our opportunity to spend trillions and trillions and trillions more on top of what we've already spent. And that's uh, concerning to a lot of people, considering when you go back to the 1940s and the history lesson would be, okay, it's time that we balance this budget as opposed to just keep spending. Um, Another question I was going to ask you about was the answer, it seems like, from the Biden administration is that don't worry about it. We'll just tax the rich and that'll make up for everything else. So is that a good strategy to rely on taxing the rich and, and raising the corporate income taxes, things like that, in order to make up? for this and can it even be done that way it's a terrible idea for a couple of reasons one it's not going to raise nearly enough money because there's just not enough rich people uh, to make up for what you need number one and number two a few minutes ago i said i'm worried about a capital shortage and if there's a shortage of capital that will lead business uh, to have to raise prices and not expand that leads to higher um, inflation and a stagnant economy we call that stagflation, raising taxes on the highest income earners will reduce capital formation further. In other words, where does new capital come from? Uh, somebody makes an investment, the investment makes money, they turn around and sell the investment, it's a capital gain, they only have to pay 20 or 23% taxes on it, that means the rest of it they can reinvest. Biden wants to raise the capital gains tax to 40%. So you're going to have them paying more in taxes, have less money to invest. It reduces the amount of capital being created at a time when we're worried about um, a capital shortage. He also wants to raise the top uh, tax bracket from 30, uh, 37, uh, 36.9 rather percent now, roughly 37 percent up to 40. Well, again, you're hitting the highest income earners. They're still going to maintain their lifestyle. They'll just have less money to uh, save and invest. That will reduce capital formation. And lastly, the corporate income tax, which is 21% now, he wants to raise it to 28%. That will lower uh, net income after tax for corporations that are paying more in taxes. They have to pay their stockholders dividends. That's why they invested in the company which means they have less retained earnings and retained earnings create capital for future growth. So by raising the corporate income tax, you're also reducing capital formation. Taxing the rich sounds good. I mean, everybody says, well, I'm a favor of that. It doesn't affect me. However, it does affect them because it reduces capital formation. It'll tend to slow the economy. It will actually make income inequality worse, not better. Biden says, well, if you take income away from people that earned it and give it to people who for whatever reason haven't earned it that will reduce income inequality but by taxing the higher income earners and reducing capital formation you end up slowing down economic growth when there's a slow growth economy it's the lowest income people that suffer the the most their incomes will will go down it will make income inequality worse not better wow yeah i was looking at a tweet that reminded me of some of the things you were saying about raising the uh, different taxes. There's a business owner, David Portnoy. Does that name sound familiar at all? 
I've, I've heard of Portnoy, yeah. Yeah, so he is Barstool Sports. He creates this giant right. sports That's network right. of podcasts, right. TV shows, and all these things. He's been making a lot of appearances on television shows and things. And people were criticizing him because he hated the idea of all these different taxes. Now, keep in mind, he employs a lot of people, and it's a huge operation now. He's built it from the ground up. It's a pretty remarkable thing he's built. And the plea that he had was... I've worked my whole life for this. Can I just stay in the upper bracket for, I don't know, more than 30 minutes before someone takes away all the wealth I've built? So if you're a business owner, and and I think it's important to point out, I know a lot of times people think business owners are this, um, oh, they're just a they're just uh, sailing on something that was already built. Uh, you know, they don't put the, uh, you know, they, the, how much do they really need? They already have enough. And, you know, you could say all these different things, but then you forget as well that part of owning the business is you have the labor and the people that you pay. And that's the livelihood of a lot of different families that depend on that. So when you start messing with these higher taxes, you're also messing with all of the other people that are part of that business that may not have a livelihood if they have to make a decision because they can't afford, you know, because somehow this money's got to come from somewhere. It's just not going to come out of the air. And it, it does have this giant effect on the economy when you start raising these taxes. And then consequently, last year, we saw what lower taxes did over the last couple of years, at least the last few years of the uh, Trump administration. It had great uh, impact on the economy and unemployment and things. And that was the right direction. And, and at least it was moving in that way. So this should concern a lot of people. Exactly. You, you brought up a couple of good points. Uh, one uh, as somebody becomes a business person, and if they're successful, and it's very difficult to become completely successful, there's just so many roadblocks that are put in front of you. That's why you don't get a lot of people becoming extremely successful. It's hard. And when they do become successful, they have created jobs. It helps. They're, they're doing it um, to earn income for themselves, which we understand. But it does also create a lot of jobs for everybody else, and it sort of uh, pulls pulls up um, everything. Uh, so we need to keep the incentives to, uh, for business, uh, individuals to, when they finally make money, that they're able to keep most of the money that they, uh, ended up making by raising the taxes on the wealthy. It gives them less incentive, you know, pretty soon. I mean, in, in some States, if you pay 40% to the federal government, if you live in California, you're paying 13% to the state of California, in addition to some other taxes, now more than half of what you earn, somebody else is getting. Well, pretty soon you start to say, why should I go any further? Why should I produce any more? Half of what I get or more than half of what I earn is going to end up going to somebody else, and we've completely destroyed the incentives. What I would say to Joe Biden today is take a lesson from President Bill Clinton. So what did he do? Uh, his first term in office, he raised taxes, and the economy didn't do very well. So he wanted to get reelected. Re so what did he do? He, in 1996, in his State of the Union speech, his exact words were, the era of big government is over, and he reduced government spending. Then he convinced Congress to reduce the, the capital gains tax rate from 28% down to 20%. That set off an investment boom for the next four years they took in more revenue from capital gains taxes at the lower rate than they were taken in at the higher rate in fact the revenue from capital gains tax from 97 to 2000 doubled or nearly doubled in addition to that the economy grew at a four and a half percent annual rate for the next four years so if 
President Biden would take a look at what Bill Clinton did, reduce government spending, work with Newt Gingrich to actually balance the budget. And those were the four years I was talking about where the government, the budget was in balance. He reduced the capital gains tax rate, which set off an investment boom. Econo- the uh, economy grew at that rapid four and a half percent annual rate. And we ended up with good times without having to bankrupt the country. They should follow what he did. And I think they'd be much more successful. Great. So if people wanted to look up your work, I know that you write and you have articles online that people could follow. What's a good website or place they could uh, find you? So two things. Um, If you check my Twitter account, I tweet out every one of my columns. It's at mbusler. That's at M-B-U-S-L-E-R. And on Facebook, I have a page called Funding Democracy. Mm -hmm. So if you're on Facebook, just in the search engine, search bar there. Just put in Funding Democracy. Every one of my columns will come up, and I'd be real happy if anybody followed me. So I know you are a professor at uh, Stockton University in New Jersey. If your students follow you, Funding Democracy, on Facebook, do they get extra credit? Um, We have to negotiate that. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Michael Bussler, public policy analyst, economics expert. Thank you so much for coming on to KMOX tonight. Thank you. My pleasure. Look forward to doing it again. And he joins us on the Bomberito Automotive Group guest line. This is Overnight America, KMOX. Welcome back to Overnight America. I'm going to play a mixture of clips from President Biden and Senator Tim Scott. Uh, I only got a couple that I grabbed from the rebuttal, but I got a few here from President Biden's speech today addressing Congress. Technically not a State of the Union, but essentially that's what it was. It was still very strange to look out and notice that there were very few people in attendance, mostly spread out, social distancing, and them going around bumping elbows during all of this. Okay, (laughs) go bump elbows. Whatever makes you feel good, I guess. But the speech today, it wasn't a bad speech by any means. I mean, it was, I would say it was your somewhat standard State of the Union style speech. There, There wasn't a lot in there that made you think that there was something special about this. It was basically the talking points that you've heard before that you know won't be able to be questioned to President Biden because, well, that's not how he works anymore. He doesn't take questions from the press. So he laid out some plans for uh, money that they want to spend. You heard Michael, or Dr. Michael Bussler, I should say, giving you an idea of why this is a not-so-great thing. Now, let me play a couple of these. If you want to call in, you can at 314-436-7900. I'm not expecting you to, but if you watch the address from earlier today, if you have any thoughts overall, but let me play this, and then I'm going to re, uh, I'm going to play the rebuttal from Senator Tim Scott. So here's the push for the infrastructure. Monetary fund is now estimating our economy will grow at a rate of more than 6% this year. That will be the fastest pace of economic growth in this country in nearly four decades. America's moving, moving forward, but we can't stop now. We're in competition with China and other countries to win the 21st century. We're at a great inflection point in history. We have to do more than just build back better. We We have to build back better. We have to compete more strenuously than we have. Throughout our history, you think about it, public. Yeah, let me pause here for a second. Whenever Joe Biden starts a speech, 
And he does this one thing, which is a forced importance. He talks, he talks down like this and makes it sound like he's whispering to add emphasis onto his speech. And it doesn't really mean that what he's saying is any more significant. He just emphasizes it like this to make it appear as if it's more important. And he does that a lot in his speeches. Public investment in infrastructure has literally transformed America, our attitudes as well as our opportunities. The Transcontinental Railroad, the interstate highways, united two oceans and brought a totally new age of progress to the United States of America. And I want you to put a pin into this. Let me just put a pin into it right now. So the emphasis here is, wow, look at all these things that the United States has done, and they put the investment into infrastructure. The Transcontinental Railroad, the interstate highways, united two oceans and brought a totally new age of progress to the United States of America. Yeah, I think it's ironic that he brings up roads, things like that, as a push for the infrastructure bill when very little of the infrastructure bill actually go towards anything remotely like that, as Senator Tim Scott brought up, one of the issues that they have with it. Another issue should, that should unite us is infrastructure. Republicans support everything you think of when you think of infrastructure. Roads, bridges, ports, airports, waterways, high-speed broadband. We're in for all of that. But again, Democrats want a partisan wish list they won't even build bridges to build bridges. Less than 6% of the president's plan goes to roads and bridges. Okay, less than 6% roads and bridges. What's the debate we always have anytime we talk about infrastructure or in general, states budgeting? In the state of Missouri, they want to do, uh, they, they, they want to increase the gas tax so it could help pay for more things like improving the roads, bridges, infrastructure, stuff like that. And that's what you think of when you think of infrastructure. But when you think about it on a federal level and the president goes up there and says, bridges and roads, and he, he leans in and he says it very intently like, oh, we need to really make sure we whisper this part. The Transcontinental Railroad, the interstate highways, united two oceans and brought a totally new age of progress to the United States of America. Isn't that great? So he uses those specific examples. And when you talk about the plan that he's putting forward, less than 6% <laughs> have anything to do with like roads or bridges or anything like that. That's Is that the definition of irony or is that just manipulation? Because if you were to look at the way this is being spent and you look at the things people agree with, yeah, I don't think people are too upset on either side if we're trying to find things like improving the roads, because we got, you know, some pretty deteriorating bridges and things that could be a danger. And you find that Senator Tim Scott is exactly right when he said that this is something that Republicans believe in, but that's not what they're putting forward in the Democratic Party. So to be against this, they make it sound like, oh, you're against uh, you're against this roads and you want potholes everywhere and you want bridges to fall into rivers. No. But again, Democrats want a partisan wish list. They won't even build bridges to build bridges. Less than 6% of the president's plan goes to roads and bridges. It's a liberal wish list of big government waste, plus the biggest job-killing tax hikes in a generation. Experts say when all is said and done, it would lower wages of the average American worker 
and shrink our economy. And so the idea of these infrastructure jobs would be able to, you'd make it up. I mean, you would make it up with all the different people out there working. It would just be wonderful. And I think he even said, President Biden, this would create millions of jobs. It's kind of a bold claim. Uh, here, This might be it here. If Let's you see. think it's not important, check out in your own district, Democrat or Republican, Democrat or Republican voters. Their great concern, almost as much as their children, is taking care of an elderly loved one who can't be left alone. Medicaid contemplated it, but this plan is going to help those families and create jobs for our caregivers with better wages and better benefits, continuing a cycle of growth. For too long, we've failed to use the most important word when it comes to meeting the climate crisis. Jobs. 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 All right, so to fight uh, climate change, definitely you are going to create jobs, according to Joe Biden. So, okay, you're just forcing it. And this is great, going back to the Keystone Pipeline and making it so that that can't be completed. And Canada is like, you got to be kidding me right now. We have to transport this oil somewhere. This is the best way to do it. Now you're, we're just going to have to hop it and transport it via car or rail, which is probably going to actually make it uh, contribute to more global warming, more climate change or whatever you want to say in something like that. They're saying this is not the it's not the economical way and it's not the environmental way of doing this. So you're trying to force it. And then you have on the other side, President Biden saying, oh, don't worry. Uh, we'll find you a green job. We're going to take your job away from this and we'll find you a green job. And then when asked about that, they said, uh, we really don't have a green job for you. See you later. Bye. Not good. And same thing, trying to push to say that all of these different climate change initiatives are about jobs. And you have AOC screaming about the Green New Deal, which I brought up with Dr. Bustler there before. And then trying to sell it as it's a job creator. So we need to definitely spend all this money into it. With all of the different wish lists that are out there from the Biden administration, I love that Tim Scott called it a, um, it was a liberal fantasy, something along those lines. Because that's that's what it is. All of these things you know are not going to add up to the what they're trying to push on you. You absolutely know that. Do, does any hardcore AOC or any hard-leaning left political ideology actually believe, actually believe what they're saying right now. Because what they do believe is, well, philosophically, or here's what I think should happen if we had all the money in the world and this would be the best thing to do and we just have to do it anyway because it's good for the environment, we got to save uh, the next generation and da 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 and fill in the blank. What they're doing is they're saying we have a moral obligation. We have a global obligation. We have, uh, you know, as the United States, the richest country, we have an obligation to do it for stuff like that. They, they say all of these things and you can take that stance, which is fine. But if you're just going to take this stance that economically speaking, we're going to benefit from this and we're going to create millions of jobs doing so, that's laughable. So trying to push the agenda by that big lie is eh, not so good. I, I think people see through that. They're not actually it's, it's almost like the CDC in a way where the CDC comes forward and they say, here's all these guidelines that we want you to do. And then we're just going to say that even if you're got the uh, double shots and you're vaccinated and you have the immunity from the virus, we still want you to go out there and double masks. And that's because science tells you double masks or whatever it is. 
if they were just being real with you with what the truth is in all of this and to say, well, we're not herd immunity and we, you know, we can't give up on it yet. We're afraid that even if you have the shots, you could spread it. So that's why we want you to do it. But no, they're, they're, what they do is they make it sound like even with immunity that you are going to put yourself at risk for being out there without a double mask is silly. <laughs> it's silly. They, they're not being honest with you. And this is more examples of the government not being honest with you. And I think that's the takeaway of the Joe Biden speech here tonight. Um, I got a couple more clips. I want to play one more from Senator Tim Scott. We'll do it right after the break. This is Overnight America KMOX. Overnight America with Ryan Recker is sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts. Michaelsflooringoutlet.com. On the voice of St. Louis, KMOX. Looking at some of the different quotes that are out there. Socialist dreams. Sounds like a terrible soda flavor, but what the Republicans are calling the different plans from the Biden administration. Um, there were a couple of good moments during the, uh, the, let me play this one real quick. Here's one where President Biden was talking about buying American. There's no reason why American, American workers can't lead the world in the production of electric vehicles and batteries. I mean, there is no reason. Well, there is. Well, let me point out real quick. There is a reason you're not seeing a lot of batteries being made here in the United States, because, number one, the materials of what goes into those batteries are primarily mined in other countries. So instead of them shipping the materials over here, they're making the batteries where the materials, a lot of them are being pulled, these rare earth materials. And number two, you find that some of these different areas, it, like, what are you going to do? You're going to build these batteries in California where they have a million extra regulations or are you going to build it overseas where there's less regulation? They can build it more affordable and then uh, get the same thing. So to say that there's no reason why they, we can't lead the world in making batteries when all you're doing is adding extra regulation on top of it, then, yeah, there is a reason why we can't do it. It's the burden that you're putting onto it. Now, you're not going to lower expectations or lower the regulations in the sense that you're going to uh, make it uh, less environmentally friendly to make these things. I don't see the Biden administration doing that. But that's probably a pretty good example of when you say there's no reason. Well, there is a reason. I mean, there is no reason. You have the capacity. You're the brightest, best trained people in the world. The American Jobs Plan is going to create millions of good-paying jobs, jobs Americans can raise a family on, as my dad would then say, with a little breathing room. Was it breathing room or breeding room? With a little breathing room. I think I think you meant breathing, but it's when you say breeding room, <laughs> it's a whole different thing. And all the investments in the American Job Plan will be guided by one principle: buy American. That's the way it should be. I I think that is. Awesome. I think we should be buying American. Here's another issue with that, because he's going to go out and they're saying, I don't see why you wouldn't do. Well, when you make it so that American companies are going to be paying higher taxes and you're going to jump the corporate tax up and you're going to be taxing um, business owners more and people that have earned more because they own a business more. And you look at that and like Dr. Bustler mentioned, if you're in California, what, 50% of your income is going to go to the government, more than 50%? That's so discouraging. If you're going to say buy American, there's no other reason why not. Well, you have to make it friendly for 
American companies to produce items here in the United States. During the Trump administration, the idea was we're going to lower the taxes. We want you to bring jobs back. We're going to redo this NAFTA garbage, and we're going to make it so that we're going to discourage people from going over to China, and we're going to have them build here back in the United States. We want them to have that, the incentive for them to be there. We're going to make it tax friendly for them to do that, too. And you know what? It started to work. You saw companies starting to come back. Unemployment rate was dropping. The economy was doing great before this virus hit. And then more and more people, even after the virus, was looking at China and saying, well, do I really want my distribution chain to be disrupted because China uh, lies about a virus or lies about whatever? And now I can't get my material out or I can't get the labor or whatever it is. No, I don't think people want to deal with that. So if you want to say buy American, make it friendly so the companies here can produce it, as opposed to making it harder by raising all of their taxes. So here, let me play this just for the sake of time. Here's the end of the speech. I want to make sure everyone catches this. So this is how he ended his address to Congress. Autocrats will not win the future. We will. America will. And the future belongs to America. So I stand here tonight before you in a new and vital hour of life and democracy of our nation. And I can say with absolute confidence, I have never been more confident or optimistic about America. Not because I'm president, because of what's happening with the American people. We've stared into the abyss of insurrection and autocracy, pandemic and pain. And we, the people, did not flinch. The very moment our adversaries were certain we'd pull apart and fail, we came together, we united. With light and hope, we summoned a new strength, new resolve to position us to win the competition of the 21st century. So at the end of the address, some very powerful words. I wanted to play this part, too, when because I, I want to highlight the word united. As Senator Tim Scott brought out, it's been anything but uniting from the party right now. Last year... Under Republican leadership, we passed five bipartisan COVID packages. Congress supported our schools, our hospitals, saved our economy, and funded Operation Warp Speed, delivering vaccines in record time. All five bills got 90, 90 votes in the Senate. Common sense found common ground. In February, Republicans told President Biden we wanted to keep working together to finish this fight. But Democrats wanted to go it alone. They spent almost $2 trillion on a partisan bill that the White House bragged was the most liberal bill in American history. Only 1% went to vaccinations, no requirement to reopen schools promptly. COVID brought Congress together five times. This administration pushed us apart. Mm -hmm. He's absolutely right about that. 100% right about that. So keep in mind, if the message is unity, they're definitely not uh, practicing what they're preaching. And it starts with Joe Biden in the speech here tonight. All right. When we come back, we'll be uh, joined by a guest. We're going to talk about entrepreneurs. And Elizabeth McBride is going to be joining us talking about her new book. This is Overnight America, KMOX. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? 
Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact. So jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.